when people are proud Assyrians. It doesn't matter what dialect they speak or what village they come from or district or what church they belong to. We're all family. Have you ever been on a soul search to understand who you are? Maybe you're currently going through that. It's Odessa, and in this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast, I had the chance to sit down and talk with Dr. Nicholas Algilu. And for Dr. Nick, that soul searching is what has led him to dedicate his life in research and academia around Assyrians. He completed his bachelor's in Semitic languages at the University of Sydney, his master's in Eastern Christianity with a specialization in Syriac Christianity at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, and a PhD in Syriac studies at the University of Sydney. His dissertation focused on the socio-cultural history and heritage of Assyrians in Iran's Ormia region. He has recently founded the Assyrian Institute, which is an independent academic research organization dedicated to modern Assyrian and regional studies. It seeks to foster and promote the study and preservation of Assyrian history, identity, language, and heritage, and to facilitate opportunities for people to pursue the study globally. If you've never met Dr. Nick, he is the kind of guy that can sit with just about anyone and have a real down-to-earth conversation, while at the same time being this huge wealth of knowledge. Like to the point where you can tell him your last name or the village of where your family's from, and he'll break down all the historic parts of the village, your possible relatives, and everything in between. (laughs) He is a gem to our community at large, and I think you'll really enjoy listening to him. If you like what we're doing at the Assyrian Podcast, show us some love. That can be through sending us fan mail at assyrianpodcast at gmail.com or on our various social media platforms. We'll really love you if you let others know about us by sharing the episode and making sure you and your friends are subscribed to the podcast, which you can do by going on www.assyrianpodcast.com and follow the links to subscribe using an iPhone or an Android. Thank you so much for being a part of our worldwide community of Assyrian podcast listeners. And finally, a thank you to our main man, our sponsor, John Oshana from HomeSmart. Whether you're thinking about purchasing or selling your home, either in Arizona or California, contact John Oshana Real Estate Professional at 209-968-9519 on Facebook at John Oshana Realtor or at john.oshana on Instagram. Now, without further ado, Dr. Nicholas Algilu. I was born in Australia. My family came from Iraq via Kuwait. And growing up in our community in the 1980s, and it was a growing community, it wasn't as large as it is now, but it was How many still... people were, would you say at that time were there? Um, at that time, in around 1988, 1989, we would have had about 15 to 20,000 Assyrians in Australia, Sydney and Melbourne. Now we've probably got more than uh, 100,000. Oh. Yeah, it was a smaller community, but it was more concentrated around Fairfield because all the biggest states and all the faraway sort of areas hadn't been built yet, people hadn't moved out. Now. It was a time when I was going to an Australian school, couldn't really relate too well to 
the rest of the people in my family because they were born overseas mm. and I had to explain to people at school who I was and what I was and what it meant you know and it was confusing it's confusing I mean our people are not a straightforward group of people we're very complex especially when I was in kindergarten in year one you had the split between the old and new calendar factions in the Church of the East which ended up in a big brawl outside the state supreme court and it was all over TV in 60 minutes so, so that was very much a part of your childhood <laughs> very much a part of, of what formed me growing up but you see what were all these churches what were Muslims what were Christians why do we have people from Syria and from Iran and from Iraq and why are we Assyrian why don't we have our own country uh, what does being a Syrian mean these were all questions that I wanted to answer why are there Chaldeans why are there what is Syriac what is Aramaic all these questions that go through your mind growing up that you probably don't even know how to answer and probably the people in your family don't even know how to answer. I would be told, you know, you are a Jilwaya, you are a Tiaraya, you are this and that and I, I didn't know what these things were. I think how, a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's one of the driving factors that made me want to, at an early age, go to libraries and start researching. I mean, I remember as a child you know, I was fascinated by the ancient Assyrians and by ancient Mesopotamia, the ancient world in general, but especially Mesopotamia. So I remember 1991, there was an exhibition called Treasures from the British Museum, and I made my family take me to it, and it wasn't around the corner. It was in the capital, Canberra, and so we had to go on a three or four hour road trip just to go to Canberra to see the exhibition so we took the whole family and, and how young were you at that time well i think in 1990 1990 i would have been what seven years old wow so that's very extraordinary for a seven-year-old to be so curious about these things right well i mean you know, i don't know i don't know i was surrounded by people that would tell me things that i didn't understand and i wanted to try and understand them more and I think part of it was that our community that moved to Australia between the 50s and the 80s in that period was actually fleeing Arab nationalism or Iranian nationalism. They were more tuned into Assyrian nationalism. They wanted to sort of maintain this Assyrian identity and language. And so they were very active politically, they were very active socially. And, you know, when the church became very strong, this all fell apart. But I remember, for example, walking through that exhibition, you know, age seven or eight probably, and just looking at the things and saying, wow, my ancestors made that. And thinking, you know, hopefully one day I'll be able to go to Iraq and see all these places firsthand. And all of these artifacts in situ or what's left. So, yeah, I would go to libraries. I'd research because everybody else at school had a country. They could explain who they were. Mm. Or they didn't even need to explain who they were. They just point to a place on a map. We didn't have a place on a map to point to. Mm. We didn't have a famous team in the World Cup or in the Olympics to say, look, you know, this is who we are. When you look at the you know, these posters of flags of all the nations in the world, you don't see your flag there. So there's a huge burden or I would say a duty, in order for us to explain who we are and explain it in a way that makes sense 
and explain it in a way that people can actually connect with, whether it be Assyrians or non-Assyrians. And obviously that took me through primary school, through high school. I would constantly be doing research or reading whatever books I can. And it hit a peak when I I was about 15 years old and I started getting involved more in Assyrian organizations and more specifically the Assyrian Australian Academic Society or TAS and that was the first time that I'd heard that there'd been an Assyrian genocide or that the events in World War One, which had been previously described as a war and people you know raka raka people fleeing that was actually a genocide and it was actually planned and I became involved in the first English language documentary about the Assyrian genocide. It's called The Untold Holocaust. I've seen that. Yeah. I was one of the people that worked on that. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I was about 15 or 16. And that's where things started. My first academic conference that I spoke at was a conference which took place between the Symposium Syriacum and the Christian Arabic Symposium in Sydney in 2000 at Sydney University. And that conference was organized by Taz and it was called Assyrians After Assyria and it was about the Assyrian genocide. So my paper was one of the introductory papers and it was, you know, who are the Assyrians? I did all this research about the Assyrian identity and, and what the Assyrian name came from and you know, why, why were Assyrians and not something else? And I presented it there in front of all of these academics that had come from all over the world. And you were how old? I, I think I had just turned 17. 17, and I can assume you're in a room of people who are well in their, what, 30s, 40s, 50s and above? Oh, yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah. And honestly... And what was that like? See, that was what sort of... That's what sort of gave me the idea that you know, I want to be in this field, I want to teach, I want to learn, and I want to write, and I want to be an educator, a lecturer. So that was your aha moment? The aha moment was that whole week. Uh So not not just that particular conference, it was only one day, I think it was on the Saturday. But Monday to Friday was the Symposium Syriacum, and, you know, just going around to all of the lectures or the sessions and seeing all of these academics from all around the world most of them non-assyrian the vast majority of them who were interested in our medieval history when we're not even interested in our medieval history we're just interested in everything bc and these were people that were you know indians and uh, europeans of all sorts north americans and you know just randomly dropping names of like saints that lived in like the fifth century and, and reading texts in what we call lishan atiqa and I, I know a lot of people don't even go to church because they can't understand it right and the, here are these nukhraya reading these whole sort of texts and translating them and explaining them wow. in their in their presentations and i just thought why should we allow non-Assyrians to write our history for us when we ourselves could be the driving force we ourselves could be that powerhouse that tells us and others who we are and provides that narrative because as I was growing I was coming across books that would negate our identity that would negate who we were it was that time when internet forums were popular 
And, you know, I'd get involved in discussions on the various forums with people that negated the Assyrian identity or that, you know, were critical of, of what the Assyrian identity was and who the Assyrians were. And was something that affected me because when you have people saying, and this, is, this actually shows up in, in, in one book that I know of, talks of Assyrians as being thoroughly mongrel. And, you know, others talk about us, uh, you know, having as much relation to the ancient Assyrians as the Arabs of modern-day Iraq. Sort of statements like that, statements even by, by Kurds. So there was this concise book of, of the Kurds, or concise handbooks of the Kurds, published by someone that was a scholar at Harvard at the time. And, you know, he basically said that the Assyrians were, were Christian Kurds that spoke Aramaic, only so that they didn't have to speak Kurdish and identify as Kurds. So it was sort of a, a Rikki thing, just, just to be different. this was a Harvard this professor, was, this a student? Was apparently a Harvard, no longer at Harvard, yeah. though. No longer at Harvard, and much of his work's been discredited. But you can still find his book in, in libraries all over the world. <laughs> you know, whacked out theories yeah. written by, by nationalists and by anti-Assyrians. So... I realized that we don't really have a voice in academia. We don't have a voice in scholarship. No one talks about us, and when they do, it's always on their own terms, and we're always this you know, peripheral group of people that no one really cares about because you know, we haven't had a country or we haven't had a state, and so they like to sort of push us off into all of these categories, divide us up into all of these what I like to call church nations, which are not really nations but are just church tribes, tribal groupings based on, on sect. And, and that really disturbed me. And one of the most empowering things for me was reading work by Assyrian scholars and professors that were teaching at universities and that were recognized. Professor Joseph Yaqub, Professor Michael Abdullah, Dr. Robert Paulisian, etc etc all of these names all of these people who are from our community professor edward odishu all of these people who were contributing to making a dent and actually keeping the torch going for our people in terms of them having some sort of a voice in academia mm -hmm. so that led to me doing my my bachelor's degree which was in semitic languages and this was where? Uh, this was which... at the University of Sydney. Okay. So So the... is that something unique that was taught there? Well, so the Symposium Syriacum was in 2000, and I'd actually taken a week off high school to go to that. Oh. And I basically said to myself after that, I want to go to university and become an academic in the field of Syriac studies. Especially since I realized how anti-Assyrian a lot of people in Syriac studies are. Mm. Against the Assyrian identity, trying to push this Aramean identity onto us just because we speak Aramaic. So, and it's also obviously part of this soul-searching and, and, you know, search for identity. Search for who I really am. And it was very important. So, when I enrolled in university, I realized, well, I had to do my Bachelor of Arts... My parents weren't too happy with that because, <laughs> you know, I only needed a 70 to get in. Yeah. And this was at Sydney University, which is one of the most prestigious universities in the country. 
I'm, I'm one of the oldest. You're not going to be a doctor or an engineer or any of them. Oh, my final score at high school was 95.65. I could have used that score to get into any other course which had a higher entry score. So I could have probably done medicine or whatever was offered at the time, engineering, what have you, law. But I used my score of 95.65 to get into a course that only required 70. Mm. And I never heard the end of it. You're wasting <laughs> 25.65 points. points. But I did it. My father was very supportive at the end and basically said, look, this is imp- if this is important to you, if this means a lot to you, go ahead. Now, and were they were they strong um, tanaya, or that they planted a seed in you? Or my father was okay. like I, I'd spend hours asking my father questions and <laughs> you know picking at his brain. I remember when I was a kid, I'd bug my dad because I was the youngest, like I was the baby of the family. So my father was nationalistic. He'd go to a lot of meetings and stuff. And often he'd bring me with him mm. because I, he didn't want to leave me at home. So he'd bring me with him and I'd see the national songs and the whatever, if they had like a dance group or if someone was saying a poem or if they had a slideshow and with all these pictures. And that, that fascinated me. I wanted to know what all of that was about. My father enrolled me in a Syrian school at the age of five. And we still have an Assyrian school in Sydney that's run by the Assyrian Australian Association. It's called the Daklat School, and it's been around for, oh, it's been around I guess since the 70s, so more than 40 years, and it's for three hours every Saturday, for all ages, right? Very cool. So my father enrolled me in that. At the time, he actually was an Assyrian school teacher himself. So yeah, I guess my dad, my dad was nationalistic. I remember. You know, as a child, my father would buy books in Assyrian and he'd sit and read them. And I'd just stand over him and bug him and say, <laughs> <laughs> You know, what are you reading? And every time he'd read something to me from the book and I didn't understand it, I'd just say, Yanimu, Yanimu. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> I was just nosy You were a curious like child. Was, yeah. <laughs> so, so he was very supportive of you then in your, in your choice of... Uh, bachelor's degree he was yeah now I had a friend at the time who helped me choose the courses that I needed to do because it was a whole new world for me and reading a student you know a university student handbook or a course handbook when you've just come out of high school is a bit daunting Mm because there's all this fine print and all these details that you need to know and I remember you know she told me look you can't do Syriac and Aramaic in your first year. You have to do another language. So I ended up doing Arabic and Hebrew. In short, over the course of three years, I did Arabic, Hebrew, Syriac, Aramaic, and Akkadian. And my major was Classical Hebrew because that was the only language that I did from semester one in the first year to semester two in the, in the third year. And Hebrew is really similar to our language. It's very similar. Like more similar, similar, would you say more similar than Arabic is to us? Well, apparently 40% of the vocab is the same. Okay. Because I can see, sometimes I see words and I'm like, I can understand what that is. Right. So, for example, you've got the word for horse. In Hebrew, it's sus. And in Arabic, it's hasan. Like it's a no-brainer which language is closer. For us, it's susa. Right. Yeah. Or like the word for sea. In Hebrew, it's yam, and in Arabic, it's bahar. Mm. 
So it's a no-brainer. We say yama. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, apparently 40% of the vocab is similar. The grammar is a little bit different. Mm. And the way of expressing yourself in that language is different. I did classical Hebrew, which was the language of the Old Testament. So that was interesting. After my first year of university, I took a year off and I spent eight months in the Middle East. I felt Where it were was, you? Oh, I started in, in Tehran. I went to Urmi. And then from Urmi, I went to Turkey. Actually, no, I went to Iraq for a Syrian New Year. And this was before all the Gishru trips. Mm -hmm. And then back to Urmi, then to Turkey. And then from Turkey into Syria, then from, from Syria into Iraq, and then back and forth to Syria. And was this just like a personal thing, or did you have a grant to go? And Oh, I didn't have a grant. So I, did you know people in those areas, or you are kind of just... Barely. Wow. Barely. I mean, I was 18, and I wow. thought... Got 18 going on 19, and I said to myself, look, I want to just go and experience my homeland. So you took it upon yourself to do that? I did. I did. I had a sheltered life in Australia, you know, in the suburbs of, of western suburbs of Sydney. Very protective family and only going to school and not doing much else. And I'd never left the country and I thought, well, it's do or die. I found someone that was writing a book about the history of the Church of the East and he needed someone to initially guide him there, but then he couldn't go. So he said, look, can you go and take photographs of churches for me and I'll pay you? And I said, sure. Wow. That'll help fund my trip. And then I ended up getting a, a loan from the bank to, to supplement me and everything else was my mum and dad. Yeah. But I already bought my ticket before I broke it to my parents that I was going. Yeah. Classic. So they yeah. couldn't say anything. No, about. no. <laughs> and so, you know, I went everywhere and it was really exciting. So there were times when I would meet up with a couple of friends that had come from Australia. They were a little bit older than me. 10 to 13 years older than me and they were from Melbourne I was from Sydney at the time and so sometimes we travel together sometimes we travel separate sometimes me and only one of them would travel it was that kind of an arrangement and I went everywhere I went to Urmi I went to Hakkari I went to Torabdin I went to Diyarbakir Mardin Seert Botan some parts of Botan Urhey Kharput in Turkey I went to you know Khabur Qamishli different places in Syria, Damascus, you know, all over North Iraq, uh, from Zahu all the way to Darbandikhan, which is near Slemania. And, you know, I saw people of all different languages and dialects and religions and cultures. And it, it really was a different Middle East before the chain reaction set off by the U.S. intervention in Iraq in 2003. And people were, were scared but they were happier mm. and we had a larger population obviously our population has been decreasing in the Middle East ever since 1915 but even at that point we still had a lot of very vibrant communities and a lot of villages uh, and towns all over that area whereas now it's a different story and I'm thankful that I got the chance to be able to go at that age when I was more energetic and was able to take down a lot of notes and you know I always had my, my video camera with me videotaping everything that I yeah. saw so when you went like when you flew to Tehran like, 
paint a picture for me like what you went there and did you know where you were going to stay did you have connections there or did you just make your way there and then try to no, figure I, out any Assyrian associations thankfully, or anything thankfully I had Rabionat and Bitkulia who oh, was okay. our parliamentarian he was the one that actually helped me get the visa in, in the first place okay. if it wasn't for him I wouldn't have been able to go that mm-hmm. whole trip wouldn't have been possible mm-hmm. so he was an amazing help and to be honest as an 18 year old going to run for the first time and you know being very headstrong I said you know Rabi I'm gonna go stay in a hotel and he said no (laughs) you're gonna stay in the Assyrian club we have rooms for guests you can come and stay at the Assyrian Association so I actually stayed there and they were really welcoming it was wonderful but yeah no that that was an experience that truly changed my life and has given me the passion that I have now yeah I was going to say, as you were going within the different cities and countries that you were visiting at that time, did you already have a set plan prior to going of all the places you wanted to visit? Or was it just as it came? And Well, there was a set plan, but I was naive. And I didn't realize that set plans usually don't work, especially when you're young and when you're traveling over such a huge, expansive area and... It's the Middle East, yeah. right? <laughs> unpredictable. Very unpredictable. <laughs> so I had actually thought that I could go from Urmi to northern Iraq for the Assyrian New Year mm. and not have to go back. So then I could travel in northern Iraq and get that out of the way before I moved on to the next part. Mm-hmm. No. They told me that because the Iraqi Kurdistan region was not an official, officially recognized government body, by Iran that there were no official entry and exit stamps and that my passport would be taken by the group leader that took us from Urmi for the Assyrian New Year so I had to go back to Urmi so I went back to Urmi basically and then thought okay well how do I get back to northern Iraq to go and do the work and finish it so I thought okay I'll take a bus I took a bus from Urmi to Diyarbakir and then from Diyarbakir to I stayed in the Assyrian Orthodox Church in Diyarbakir and then a few days later the priest put me on a minibus to go to Nasibin and then from Nasibin I crossed the border into Qamishli but you see the problem was the border guards wanted a bribe and they kept telling me that my visa wasn't valid so they made me wait for three days in Nasibin they wouldn't let me in and then on the third day when they did let me in, they confiscated my passport and sent it to Damascus. So it, I didn't get my passport for another month and a half nearly. And I had I was stuck in Damascus with a piece of paper from the border guard saying we've taken this kid's passport. And I was lucky I had a friend there that I could stay with who back then, he, he lives in England now, but, but that, back then he was a, an Assyrian that was a reporter for the Associated Press. And that obviously threw my plans out of whack, yeah? Yeah, extended it by almost a month. Right. And the person in Iraq that I was meant to work with ended up leaving. And as I was going into Iraq, she was coming out. And we met each other in the same house. (laughs) So she came to the house where I was staying and which I was leaving from. And she said, where have you been? (laughs) And obviously, you know, I told her the whole story. That was a very interesting part of my life, especially because I couldn't do much traveling in Syria. In Syria, if they catch you without a passport, you're, well, back then especially, 
the rules were more tighter and security was, was tighter if they caught you without a passport or without any sort of ID. Yeah, good luck. So you gave a talk here, a lecture here in Hamilton, and it was a virtual tour of Assyria. So many of the pictures that you had shown in the lecture were those pictures from this trip? As... No. Oh, okay. Very few. Back then, I didn't have a digital camera, so I was... So how did you document? I was taking photographs with a slide with slide film, mostly. Wow. Um, that's so, old school, right? That's very old school, but that's because the author of the book wanted slides mm. because they were better quality but all of my trips thereafter everything's been documented by sony you know cybershot or whatever kind of digital camera i really don't do slr cameras just because they're a little bit too complicated and too bulky and large um screams i'm a tourist basically <laughs> it's it no it also screams i'm a tourist with money yeah oh. Um, I remember when, when uh, me and my friend were in Turkey in 2002, that first trip, and my friend is a doctor from Melbourne, and there was a, an Assyrian priest that saw my friend's SLR camera, and he had, like, he was a doctor, you know, he had an SLR camera that was huge and chunky, and he basically said to him, uh, You know, he knew that it was, it was meant, it screamed that I have money. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite modest when I travel, when especially travel. in the Middle East. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. So you did this traveling on your year off? You took a year off? That was on my year off. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been to the Middle East many times since. Yeah. So all up, I've been to Lebanon six times, Syria about five or six times, been to Iraq uh, twice. I've been to Iran three times. I've been to Turkey maybe, yeah, six or seven times. I've been to Jordan maybe three or four times. So it's a special place for me. And unfortunately, the violence there and, and the unrest there is something that obviously affects me. You hear about communities being displaced or, you know, places being destroyed or people being driven out. No one wants to hear about any of that. And no one wants to say, look, the place where I was, where I had so much fun, where I had such great food, where I, you know, had such good laughs with such amazing people, is not there anymore. And that happened in my lifetime. I think that's a very hard burden to bear. But it's true in my case. There are things that I've seen that I don't think anybody else will ever see anymore. And that goes for many people that, that go to the Middle East or that have been going in the last few years. There are things that we've seen that, that no one else will ever get to see, basically because it's gone and gone forever. And if it, if it does come back, it's not going to be the same. I think something interesting that you've also experienced and you had mentioned it was your friend who was you had met in Syria but now lives in England. And that is very much a, a reality for many Assyrians over our lifetime, but really within what's been happening over the course of the last few years as well, has mm -hmm. been a lot of push into other countries. Well, I mean, in Syria, I had maybe 20 households of relatives. Now there's probably only two or three, and they're everywhere. They are in Australia, they're in Chicago. Um, I've got a cousin in London, I've got family in, in Arizona and in California, Modesto, Turlock. What feelings do those 
kind of circumstances bring to you? It's terrible because when I was there, I I used to tell them, look, don't even think of, of moving to the diaspora because it's too hard. It's too hard to keep up and to, to establish yourselves. And you'll probably lose your children. Your grandchildren, great-grandchildren probably won't even know how to speak your language. They'll probably be assimilated. It's it's very, very hard living in the diaspora. And you know, What would I, they say when you would tell them that? Some of them would say look it's not important we just want to have good lives others would say look you're right you know this is our country we don't want to leave we didn't even think of leaving mm -hmm. and the heartbreaking thing is when you see so many people that never really wanted to leave and have only left because they were forced out and now that they're here they're so depressed they're so sad it's almost like they're in a situation that was no choice of their own and they don't know what to do one thing that really affected me was uh, last week when I went to London, Ontario. And what can I tell you? I went to London for a day to visit a cousin and to see some friends of mine. And it just felt like being in Tiltamar in, in Syria again. Why is that? It's turned into a little Tiltamar. Like there were at least 20 people that I knew, that I used to hang out with when I was in Tiltamar, when I would go in 2009, 2010, and I've stayed in Tiltamar, and now they're mostly in London, mm. or they're in Beirut, waiting for visas to come to Canada, and they're eventually going to go to London. <laughs> so it, it was weird. It was truly bizarre, because... Whereas they had previously all been in this little village in the middle of Mesopotamia, now they're in this large provincial town in Canada and intermingling with all these other different people, whether they're migrants or they've been Canadians for many, many generations. And it's just a different dynamic. And they've changed a lot too, you can tell. Like in Syria... They couldn't even speak a lick of English, and now they're having full conversations in English. A lot of them have only been here one or two years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're forced to acculturate, right? Of in course. And your new society. Yeah, it's it's a very odd thing to try to make sense of. Like where it's these unfortunate circumstances that have pulled people into new parts of the world that they now have to call home, and dealing with how to acculturate and at least being within their communities yeah i mean one thing that i found with a lot of these new and emerging communities or new arrivals is that a lot of them are still in shock hmm. and a lot of them don't realize the need for establishing community organizations yet maybe because they don't realize how important it is in a diaspora situation to stay connected to each other hmm. because to them they lived in settlements where everybody was a Syrian it wasn't a necessity they didn't need to have organizations mm. and actually any kind of organization would have been suppressed by the government anyway mm. you know it doesn't matter where it is mm. so yeah That's it's interesting. interesting Nick I want to go back to your academic life so you had finished up your bachelor's degree Yes. And then you went into your master's, and what did you get your master's I in? I did my master's, so the program was called World Religions, and I 
did my master's degree in Eastern Christianity with a specialization in Syriac Christianity. I did it at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, and I'd really like to thank Dr. Nouras Atto, who was a PhD student there at the time, and who was advertising that particular course mm. at the Assyrian Convention in Santa Clara in 2004. In California? In 2004. Ah, okay. She actually had the advertisements for the course, and I picked it up, and I said, well, I'd rather do this than do an honors year at Sydney University in classical Hebrew. I'm not interested in Hebrew. I just did Hebrew so that I would do Syriac and Aramaic and, you know, Akkadian and archaeology and history and all of that. And so I saw this and I jumped on it and I said, look, how can I, how can I get in? So she actually helped get me a, tuition, a partial tuition waiver from the university. And without that, I think I wouldn't have been able to do it. I'd also like to thank Atia Khamri, who is a provincial parliamentarian in the Netherlands. She's also an Assyrian, a very, very strong nationalistic Assyrian woman who, as a big sister to me, helped me a lot. She managed to get a lot of financial help from wealthy Assyrians around the world to actually help me survive in the Netherlands while I was doing my master's because I didn't manage to get a scholarship to oh, live I was, there. I was just going to ask how you had that connection. So you did your master's in the Netherlands? Yes, I did it in the Netherlands. Oh. I moved there for a year. And, you know, my father had recently passed away. He'd passed away the oh, year before. So I didn't have that support. So, yeah, it was so important. And I realized how potent we are as a community. You know, if someone like me could go to the Netherlands and manage to be helped by his own community to survive and to study and to finish a master's degree. That That's something that I'll never forget. And those people that helped me, I will never forget. You know, and I think that's that's something that we need to do for others. And needs it needs to continue because we have so few people within our community that are taking this route. We need to provide them with a living. We need to provide them with the mechanisms with which they can excel and not die of hunger while promoting our language and culture and history. So yeah, that was my, my master's degree. I wrote my master's thesis on the architecture, on religious architecture, so the architecture of churches belonging to Assyrian religious denominations, church denominations, specifically east of the Tigris River, because if I'd included the West and like Diyarbakir, Torabdin, Mardin, it just would have been too large. So I focused it on, I'd luckily, a few years before, had gone to all these places and I'd managed to document church buildings, right, with my photographs and with my notes. And so I already had material with which to write a master's thesis. After the master's, I came back to Australia and I was exploring options. I didn't directly go into a PhD. I was exploring options and in Australia, as an Australian citizen, the PhD was free. I didn't have any fees. And from my second year onwards, I managed to get a scholarship with a stipend to live on. And I only got it the second year because I appealed. But it was a better deal. And I was convinced by the man that later became my PhD supervisor, Professor Rifat Abed, uh, at the University of Sydney. And he'd been someone that had 
that I'd known since I was a teenager. I mean, the Assyrian Australian Academic Society would bring him to give lectures about our history and our culture. Was he an Assyrian himself? No, he's Coptic. Ah, he's Coptic, okay. But, you know, very well versed on medieval Assyrian history and the role that Assyrians played in building uh, Arabic or Islamic civilization and contributing to it in Baghdad under the uh, the Abbasids. I'd known him since then and worked a lot with him that year, when, which was the last year of high school for me when I participated in that conference because he was convening the Symposium Syriacum. And then from my first year of university till my third he was teaching most of the courses that I took, so it was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. He'd already been a mentor for me. So I listened to his advice, and I, I did the PhD at the University of Sydney. And it was a PhD in Syriac studies? It was in Syriac studies. And what was your dissertation on? My dissertation was on the sociocultural history and heritage of Assyrians in Iran's Urmia region. Mm. And I based that on a corpus of over 2,000 inscriptions that I'd collected in the field. So part of the PhD, so I didn't have to do any coursework. Really? No. It was purely research. So from the outset, basically I had to do a a literature review and then plan out what was going to happen over the next three or four years or five years and then start doing my fieldwork to collect my data and... You know, I had to go on two field work, two field work expeditions. I went to Urmi, and again, you know, I'd like to thank uh, Rabi Onatan um, Betkolia for helping me go again those two times. I went basically to 200 sites where historically Assyrians have lived or that have been associated with Assyrians or with Armenians, and I photographed everything I could. And I tried to sort of photograph anything written in our language, whether it be classical Syriac or modern Assyrian. And it was very interesting to piece together elements of the sociocultural history of our people in that part of the world that you won't find in a textbook or, you know, in in a newspaper or in a magazine or in any other kind of publication because they're, they're not really based on that grassroots history. There's nothing more intimate in terms of a historical text than a gravestone. Because a gravestone not only tells the story of someone who actually lived and is buried under it, but it's also created by someone. It's not written by some fancy schmancy priest or professor mm-hmm. sitting in, a, in, a, in an ivory tower. You know, these were actually made by craftsmen. And... What's interesting is that sometimes these craftsmen were illiterate, and so who actually wrote the epitaph was probably, you know, a learned person in the village, or someone with a basic education. Sometimes it was the craftsman himself, and the craftsman would even write that the gravestone was carved and composed by X or Y. It it was very interesting because it opened up a world where Assyrians formed a large chunk of the population of the Urmi district. Back then, they were the second largest ethnic group, roughly 78,000 people in 1915. And they had a lot of schools. They were, About 80% of the male and female population were literate. They were able to read and write, which is probably the highest 
the highest literacy level you'll find in the Middle East, even today. And why is that so fond in that region as opposed to anywhere else that Assyrians have been living? Well, because it was an easier target for missionaries. The missionaries went there and started opening up schools, and it was at first the American Presbyterian mission, and then a competition for people's souls, right? But also political influence. Because the more adherence a church had, the more clout it would have politically in that very sensitive area where the boundaries of the Russian, Ottoman, and Persian empires met. So the American Presbyterian mission was followed by the French Catholic mission, and then that was followed by the Russian Orthodox mission, and then that was followed by the Anglican British mission, and then later on you had maybe a Swedish Lutheran mission or a German Lutheran mission, and there was even a Baptist mission, and I think at, at, in one village I saw what, what remained of a Seventh-day Adventist church built in 1910. So all of these different, different religious groups would open up schools, mm-hmm. and they would provide education for boys and girls. And the education that they would provide would first be in their mother tongue, second would be in one of the local languages. So it would either be Persian or Turkish or both. So most of these people would would, would come out knowing three to four languages, because don't forget they'd also teach their own language. So whether it be English or German or Russian or French. And so you have this, this situation in Urmi in the 19th to early 20th centuries where you had a population that was not only 80% literate, male and female, but also they had so many schools, they could speak more than one language, they could communicate in more than one language and read literature from more than one, in more than one language. So they could understand a completely different culture or a a completely different world. When Urmi, was abandoned in 1918, so in that time of of the First World War, there were up to five newspapers in the Assyrian language being published and circulated in and around Urmi. And these were newspapers that would come out, what, once a week? I don't know of any regular Assyrian magazine or journal these days in the diaspora. I know the Nineveh magazine, but that's quarterly, but definitely not something that's published on a weekly basis. No. So Urmi had Iran's first medical college, which was built in the 1870s by the American missionaries. Urmi had a number of printing presses. It produced Iran's first newspaper. And I think this might be a little bit embarrassing to to nationalistic Iranians, but the first newspaper published in Iran was not even in Persian. It was in Assyrian. Mm. In 1848 or 1849, Zahrir al-Bahra by the American mission. So the Assyrians in Iran at the time were trailblazers and that was because of all the missions. They really took advantage of the fact that they could read and write and gain status with their education. And that's one of the reasons why you find such a large body or corpus of inscriptions and where you know you would even find inscriptions that were composed by the average Joe Blow and even letters. People would write letters to each other in, in Assyrian. How nice is it, you know, to be able to write a letter to someone in your own language that you speak 
rather than having to write in a second language mm -hmm. such as Arabic or Persian or Turkish or whatever so it was a different it was a different period in our history and that's one of the things that attracted me to it I mentioned that I visited Urmi for the first time when I was 18 back in 2002 and when I did I noticed that our villages there were abandoned they were empty that the the churches were being vandalized the graveyards were being vandalized the gravestones were being broken up and used for building material or you know just defaced and these inscriptions were being lost these inscriptions with all of the valuable information on them were being lost and this was a history that would never return, would never come back, could never be salvaged if it's gone. So I thought at least, you know, one day that I would go back and photograph them and do something with those photographs. And thankfully, I was able to. There were a lot of inscriptions that were overturned. I wasn't able to overturn the stone to read them. So there's still a lot of work to be done. I've sort of finished that work after my second field work trip in 2009 but there's a lot more that can be done in the future i just haven't been able to find the funding to to go back and to do all those other things that need to be done and also it's hard when you don't have a, a population there that can help you what's a population like there now well i think the assyrian population in urmi is anything between five to seven thousand people and most of them live in the town very few of them live in the villages. In the villages, you'll find most of them either empty and only populated during the summer, or you'll find most of the inhabitants are non-Assyrians and you'll find maybe a couple of old people that still live in their houses and, and tend their farms. Mm. So Urmi is it's, it's a very important place for us as Assyrians. It's a very historical place, but it's also a very sad place. And I made that promise to myself when I was 18 that if anything, I would try and go back to, to document that history before it was lost forever. So you did your dissertation on this, and you have finished since finished your PhD. You've completed your PhD. And so, as Dr. Nicholas Algilu, what do you hope to do? What is your goal? Well, I graduated in um, 2013, and, you know, I'd been applying for various teaching and, and research positions at universities. I'd been trying to apply for postdocs. Unfortunately, I've met a lot of hurdles and been a bit unsuccessful with that. They're very competitive. Mm. And to be honest, I will use the word heartless. What I have decided to do now, since it's been about five years and I haven't found anything stable. I mean, look, I have had a four-year stint, I would say, teaching classical Syriac at the University of Melbourne, but that is as a, as a casual lecturer. So that's only for the summer school. So for the rest of the year, I'm not doing anything. And obviously that's not really gonna serve, serve my purpose as well. So I have set up an Assyrian Institute, an Assyrian Research Institute. The name of it is the Assyria Institute. I managed to set it up in March and I'm still in the process of creating a website for it and it's registered with the state government in Victoria but I have to register it with other federal organizations in order for it to become a charitable organization and to, to have tax deductible status and basically it will be focused on doing research that's important to Assyrians and 
That research includes historical research, geographical research, sociological research, providing those textbooks that we've always needed but have never had, those standard reference books about our history, about our geography, about our villages, about our customs, and those kinds of things, but also to translate books from Assyrian into English in order to make them accessible to a larger readership that is either diaspora Assyrian and not fluent in reading and writing Assyrian, or non-Assyrians, including academics, in order and this is also in order to contribute to us having a greater voice in academia because when there is nothing written in English people are just going to write whatever they want but when there is material in English people will actually see what the perspective of that people is on their own history and that way we can finally have a voice also part of what the Institute wants to do is encourage other people to get into the field of Assyrian studies by giving public lectures on various Assyrian issues uh, and topics. Before I left Melbourne, for instance, I gave two lectures, one at one of the Assyrian halls in Melbourne, and it was about the 100-year anniversary of the murder of Marbanyam and Shimon and the events surrounding that assassination. And the second was about the history and significance of the Assyrian New Year, and that was held in conjunction with the Ethnic Communities Council from one of the cities from one of the city councils in Melbourne. So basically we're trying to raise our profile that way, as well as participating in international academic conferences and doing what we can. Right now, for instance, we have our first translation project. We're working on the translation of somebody's memoirs, which have been published in Assyrian in Australia, but now we're translating them into English for publication. And that's an important project because it details somebody's personal history from the you know late 1800s until the 1970s and 1980s when they settled in Australia. So it goes through that whole period of the genocide and, and resettlement in Iraq and the levies, etc. Yeah, you're doing some really crucial work. I think the Institute and its mission is fulfilling a need within our community at large. So I'm really glad to see that you are setting something like that up. What would you say the goal of that is in five years? The goal of that would be to at least have a few more publications mm -hmm. and to have participated in a few more conferences, maybe conducted some more tours of the homeland. Mm -hmm. So is that what you actually hope to do? I know you had mentioned uh, during your lecture on the virtual tour of Assyria that you would like to have some organized tours. You'd been to Hakkari, and so would you. Well, I like to. Do I conducted. That? I conducted a, a 100-year commemorative tour in 2015 of Hakkari. So I managed to find seven participants from all over the world. So two from the U.S., two from Sweden, one from Canada, one from Turkey, and one from Russia. And we spent two weeks going all over Hakkari. So basically I was taking them from village to village, from district to district, telling them, you know, this is X, this is Y, and this is why these places are significant. And, you know, giving them a space to be able to take it in, take the place in, take the energy of these places in, go into, you know, the ruins of, of the stone churches and to pray in them, buildings that had not seen someone pray in them for a hundred years. 
speak with the locals, try and get them to understand who we are and why we're there, and to try and build bridges as well, mm-hmm. and to, to connect to connect with the land there, to connect with the people that, that are living there today, and to, I don't know, maybe come to some form of reconciliation or some kind of some kind of understanding because at the end of the day our ruins our artifacts our buildings our churches are still there and we want them to be preserved but we can't preserve them if we don't live there so we really need to work with the people that are there now and get them to realize why these places are important and if we don't go and visit them they're not going to understand why they are important so hakari is is that was a trailblazer of, of a tour mm-hmm. and hopefully I'll be able to do another one next year fingers crossed I'm just watching the political situation because for the last three years it hasn't been so good mm-hmm. um, it was great when we went but we left it was almost like a stroke of good luck or bad luck I don't know as soon as we left things sort of turned sour and they haven't been very good for the last three years mm-hmm. so there's also the idea of maybe doing other kinds of tours not necessarily of the homeland but just of Assyrian heritage in general whether it be Urmi which is also part of the homeland or the Caucasus which is not part of our homeland but has a strong presence of Assyrians living in villages since the 1830s or in Georgia especially where you have the 13 Assyrian fathers that went there and and preached Christianity or in France, where you have St. James the Assyrian, who was the first bishop of Savoy and Tarantes in the French Alps in the 5th century AD. So there are all of these places that we can go to and go on tours that are connected with our history. They don't necessarily have to be in our homeland. Yeah. And you, your studies have taken you all across the world. You've done lectures, you've gone to conferences, and so you've gotten to meet a lot of Assyrians all throughout the world. Of the communities, of the areas of which you've met Assyrians, which community has been the most memorable to you? They're all memorable, but each has its own unique qualities. Mm. I find the, the community here in Canada, for instance, very much an intellectual community. You have a... Not that the whole community is intellectuals, obviously then they aren't, but you have a high concentration of intellectuals here. Mm-hmm. There is a very big focus on education in this country, and, you know, you, I don't think we have the same ratio of university-educated people or people with PhDs that we have in Canada, elsewhere in the diaspora, for instance. And that's something that I think is memorable about Canada. Mm. Something that's memorable, for example, about Arizona. You know, everybody in Arizona likes to get together. You'll see them always hanging out with each other. And they all know each other. And it's it's a small community. Mm. And everybody's sort of close together. I like that. You know, I liked Turlock and Modesto. I love Los Angeles. The The beautiful thing that I see everywhere I go is that people are starting to create a sense of community and belonging and inclusivity which is so important because for so long we've been excluded by the societies that we've lived in for not being of the same ethnic background or not being of the same religion or not speaking the same language and now that we're in the diaspora we have to show that we're more accepting 
of other kinds of Assyrians and to actually bring them in in order for us to have a strong strong numbers rather than being exclusive and narrowing ourselves to one certain part of, of the community. Do you experience Assyrian hospitality in the I same do. way no matter where you are? Of course I do. Yeah. The amount of people that have opened up their houses and, and their hearts to me and their families and you know just been so accepting and so warm and so welcoming and so supportive has been amazing. I really feel and I've always felt this to be honest that when people are nationalistic and when people are proud Assyrians it doesn't matter what dialect they speak or what village they come from or district or what church they belong to we're all family we feel this connection with each other. I remember going to Qamishli and having friends there that were Western Assyrians from the Syriac Orthodox Church and you know, very nationalistic people. And every time I'd go and I'd hang out at their house, they were my family. Mm. It wasn't like I was going to visit Nash and Ukhraya. I was going to visit relatives. That's how, we, that's how it felt. And I think that's how it feels when I'm with... Assyrians of the same thought pattern elsewhere in the world. That Yeah, that's really cool to see. I see that too. I experience it. I know many other people have said the same thing as well, which is amazing to know that we're very much rooted in that no matter where it is that we live. So you from a young age were a very curious child. Yes. You would often ask questions to your father or ask questions that were very complex from a very young age and you have developed an interest and you've pursued that all throughout your life. That's unique in the sense that you won't find many young Assyrians who were born in the diaspora having a passion and a curiosity that young. Mm. What would you say to young people in the diaspora? Like why, why should they care about being Assyrian? And why should they care about being involved in anything Assyrian? My gut reaction to that question would be to say, because people died for being Assyrian. And I don't want to give people a guilt trip, but the very fact that people died because they were Assyrian. They died because they spoke this language. They died because they had this identity and they didn't want to give it up. It would be an insult to their memory if we did not get involved, you know, and if we did not try and um, in one way or another learn more about this heritage or, or maintain it or keep it, we don't have a state. And so rather than treating it as a burden, we should be perceiving this as, as everybody's duty. We have maintained our identity over the last 2,600 years or 2,700 years. We need to keep that flame going. The Assyrians are unique out of most nations or ethnic groups in the world because we have been able to maintain our ethnicity without having a unified, strong state to maintain it for us. And the way we've maintained it has largely been through our isolation, through our segregation from other societies, but we are now living in a situation where that's not the case. 
we can't become the Amish or the Mennonites overnight and go and build communities out in, in the sticks that are self-sustaining and cut off from everyone else. But we do need to find a middle ground and we need to study successful diaspora populations that have been able to maintain themselves over the, over the course of centuries and to mimic them in a way because mimicking of course is the best form of flattery but also because you know when you mimic something that is successful there is a high success rate out of it as well so we can mimic the sort of institutions that these other diaspora populations have established for themselves and the way that they work learn how they operate in order for us to have something where we can maintain our language and our culture into the future that's institutionalized that's enshrined and part of that is standardizing things like the language and and the historical narrative but also making them inclusive the other thing is you know for assyrians we really need to work on our marketing we really need to work on how we advertise ourselves because we are up against other competitors that are vying for the same audience that are vying for the same uh, group of people that we're aiming for as our audience. So we need to, as a community, first be popular, first have an image that people would want to identify with, and something that is successful, something that is confident. And also, moreover, we really need to provide people something that others can't. We really need to provide people with services that they can rely on and provide them with things that they can be proud of and say, look, you know, I'm an Assyrian. I get, I get this. This is what benefits me for being an Assyrian. And we need to work on that. And obviously there are going to have to be people that sacrifice their time and their money and maybe even their jobs or their families in order to, to build these kinds of structures. But once they're put in place, these will stay for maybe, hopefully, in perpetuity. And they can be continued by the community, but we really need to build that. You had touched base with a, a woman at the lecture who's, was it her grandfather who was a Syrian or great-grandfather who was No, her a grandfather. Syrian. Recently, the president of the Assyrian American National Federation was here in Canada while I was here, and he was leaving to go back to Chicago. And as he was putting his bags in the car to leave, he got a phone call, and it was from this lady who wanted to find out more about her husband's family because they had these letters in some language that nobody could read but they were told is like 2500 years old and you know they had no clue she didn't know what her husband's family were were they persians were they assyrians were they armenians there was some sort of christian group from the middle east and they had this this body of letters that no one knew what what they contained so we made an appointment. I gave her my, my number and she called me. We made an appointment for me to go and visit the man who owns most of these letters. And he's 92 years old now. He's the father of that lady mm. who came to the lecture. And I went there. It was him. It was his daughter, his 
grandson and it was the lady I'd initially spoken to and her husband so there were about five people there and as things turned out these people were descended from two brothers who had come to Canada so the first had come to Canada to study in 1907 or 1908 and graduated from McMaster University which was then in Toronto in 1914 with a degree in theology the other had stayed back in Urmi and had a wife and child who were basically killed in the genocide and him being a widower who had just lost his family had escaped to Georgia in the Caucasus in what is now the Caucasus but was then part of the Russian Empire and from there he managed to escape and come all the way to Canada to join his brother in 1917 and they were part of this little community of Assyrians that started growing in Toronto and, and Thunder Bay. So they're mostly Protestants from Urmi. And the older brother, who had graduated from McMaster, became a Baptist minister and basically travelled all over Canada from New Brunswick to Winnipeg and in Manitoba. And these are all Canadian provinces. Yeah. yeah. And he was a Baptist minister. It was amazing. And just reading through their correspondences with each other in Assyrian, you get that personal feel. And these were letters from, you know, 1918 to the 1940s. So they spanned a period of about 30 or 40 years. It was fascinating to meet them and to tell them about where they were from and who their relatives are and how they can link up with other Assyrians. We found out, for instance, that their family is the Kochali family and they're also related to the Ganja family. And these are two families from the village of Qurtapa Shahinabad in Urmi. And we managed to find some relatives in Thunder Bay, some, some other relatives that are in California. Still trying to link them up together, but, you know, it'll happen. And just how it was sort of clicking with them, the man's daughter who you met, she was introduced to me as a Persian princess and later I told her, well, sorry, I, I don't think you're a Persian princess, but would you be happy being an Assyrian queen? And she was delighted with that. <laughs> These kind of stories are sometimes just like overwhelming to process because we have this very rich recent history that goes undocumented and then you hear something like this pop up where someone then just finds out that everything that they had known or whatever little of what they've known up until now was actually either incorrect because they didn't know what the language was or whatever it is. Mm. But while those things keep me hopeful, it also scares me because I think, well, maybe at that time there were not many Assyrians at that point. So there weren't communities for people to... Yeah interact with intermingle with mm -hmm. but we are dealing with diasporic communities where a lot of people and for years have been living in the these western countries what have you mm -hmm. and we often say we need to continue preserving our language speaking our language doing these cultural activities whatever the reality of it is though and I'm bringing this up with you because maybe you've seen it throughout the diaspora, is that there still are a lot of younger people who just, it doesn't click with them. It doesn't click that they're, they're Assyrian, but anything more than that is not something that's necessary 
to pursue or be involved with. So is that common within other communities as well, where generations later, this is eventually we're going to be like how Irish at one point came here and said that they were Irish and now they're just white. Are we also, after being in these Western communities for the next couple of generations, are eventually just going to say we're white? I think other... What we need to realize is that other nationalities, other ethnicities, have the benefit of having a nation state to preserve their culture. Mm-hmm. There is an island. Mm-hmm. Ireland's always going to be there. It's got a seat in the United Nations. So the Irish here don't need to preserve their language and their culture. There is an island with, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands or, or millions of people that live there, where that is preserved and it's institutionalized. We don't have that luxury. Now, it all boils down to the individual. Maybe the individual will say, well, I don't want to have that responsibility. If we don't have a country, I don't want to be the one that steps up and tries to preserve my culture and language. I don't want to have to do that. Everybody is free to think and do as they wish. One thing I would say, however, is not only are we in a situation where we don't have the luxury of a nation-state that preserves and develops out and maintains our culture and language. But we are also in a situation where only or less than half a million of us are left in the Middle East. Less than half a million out of three million. So 2.5 million of our people now live in North America, Latin America, Europe, um, North Africa. We do have people in Egypt, for instance, they live in the former Soviet Union, they live in Australia and New Zealand, so they're dispersed. You can't expect the less than 500,000 people that are left in the Middle East to be able to maintain our language and culture. They, A, don't have the critical mass because they're also dispersed in the Middle East. And they're in survival mode, They're in right? survival mode. A lot of them are actually waiting for visas to leave. When I say there's less than half a million Assyrians left in the Middle East, that includes refugees, for example, that have left Turkey and gone to, left Iraq and gone to Turkey or Lebanon, uh, or left Syria and gone to another country and are waiting for visas to leave. So the half a million Assyrians that are currently in the Middle East is probably going to go down even further in the next five to ten years. We don't have the luxury. I think people need to start realizing that and start realizing that, well, is it important to them for Assyrians to remain part of the world community into the future? We have been in history. We have maintained ourselves over the last 2,600 years without a state. Why can't we continue that? Why can't we work towards that? Why are we so fatalistic? and letting others define who we are or decide what happens to our future and to our fate. I think we need to really start saying that enough is enough and we need to step up and take control of our own situation and start being more responsible for what happens to us rather than sitting back and saying, well, it's all fine and whatever happens will happen and whoever's active can be active, but I'm just going to sit and watch everything pass by and maybe participate when I want to. I think, you know, we need to start building a culture of philanthropy, start building a culture of community service, where we can start valuing our community more and appreciating what the active people in our community are doing in order to encourage more people to be involved.